Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 165, recorded on May 11th, 2022. The Cloud Pod is angry that Amazon describes step functions as low code. Good evening, Jonathan and Ryan. How are you doing? Good, Justin. How are you? Well, and, and I'm angry because I read that. I read that headline. That's not okay. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Just, <laughs> hunt the lead just a little bit on that, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I was uh, caught my by surprise too when they said that. So we'll see. Well, it's a uh, quite a few things this week. So let's get into it once again with a general article here about the future on premise in the cloud. Uh, which is a article written by Michael Batham at Rimini Street, uh, and uh, he you know basically goes on to talk about businesses that are going to the hybrid cloud and you know how this is a big deal and all that. And it was interesting though because he he ultimately says that on the long term you're actually worse off going to hybrid cloud, um, which is not what I was expecting from the article because most of these articles about hybrid cloud are written by Dell or <laughs> HPE. Uh, and so typically they're they're all about hybrid because of course if they're not there's no hybrid they have no uh, they have no possible way of uh, selling you product so of course they want hybrid to live uh, but you know overall Michael's reasons make a lot of sense as the cloud becomes more pervasive your ability to find talent who understands on-premise hardware becomes more difficult uh, and with new college grads using the cloud in school they are more interested in working for companies that provide the capabilities they learned on top of he goes on to talk about three additional drawbacks of a long-term hybrid model. Uh, and he highlights the additional administration and specialized skills required. The hard costs reach a tipping point when the physical footprints reporting on-premise architecture eventually stops delivering on the ROI. And which in my mind thinks like, oh, it's time to do a major core network upgrade or things that you only do on a five or seven year basis. Uh, and then ultimately the policies need to become cloud aware and on-premise and now will start hindering your ability to be innovative because you're trying to fit both needs and or maintaining duplicative controls uh, becomes a mighty nightmare. Man, I couldn't agree with this article more. I'm living this nightmare currently, um, trying to, you know, bridge a lot of the the policies and automation that we've introduced in the cloud into you know hybrid space, and it is not going well. <laughs> you know, it's just they're very different languages, they're very different approaches. Um, just historically, you know, they've been, and then just skill set wise, you know, the people working on these things. They, you know, some of them are like super amazing network engineers that, you know, can get, you know, round trip times humming, at a, you know, at a super low level. But then, you know, you talk about, you know, a promotion policy for configs to roll out automatically or, or sanity checks and they just look at you with big doe eyes. It is very hard. Yeah. Well, and, and there's things that the cloud has enabled that are just impossible to do on on-premise infrastructure because of the scale differences, um, or it's at a cost point that just doesn't make sense to you to do at all. So yeah, there's lots of lots of strange things uh, that you know you end up doing in these Herculean efforts to make hybrid work forever. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm glad to see a think piece like this because a lot of them are just you know vendor vendor mm-hmm. red <laughs> you know contrived pieces of garbage that we don't talk about most of the time. But I always like to see a good one that you know I, I feel aligns well to what we we really think is the truth out there in the market. Yeah. All right, well, moving on to AWS, and we're going to talk about Proton, the service that nobody uses, but sounds really cool on paper. 
Uh, and they hoping to get you to use this product by now releasing a new Proton sample template libraries. And these libraries are a curated set of AWS Proton templates that use AWS best practices for popular applications such as load balanced web applications or Amazon API Gateway backed AWS, uh, uh, sorry, Lambda fronted by, by API Gateway. Uh, and you can use them in the library to deploy these common application architectures quickly as a starting point to build your own templates or learn more about how Proton templates work. And each template comes with a code pipeline, CICD pipeline, and with an app code, you can use test workflow end to end. And samples are available to you both in CloudFormation and Terraform, uh, so you don't have to go cloud native on this one. You can stick with Terraform. That's, that's cool. I, I think one of the biggest complaints that the people have had of AWS over the years is just that there's so many different ways of doing things, and they were never opinionated about doing things a certain way. So seeing these examples, these concrete examples that that include CI. And um, and deployment is um, it's really good. Yeah. I've, I've people stop complaining there. Oh, that, no way! Because you know, like Proton was only developed as an as an answer for like you know how you know how should we deploy onto Amazon and and all these things, and it's it's setting yourself up just so someone could armchair quarterback it and poke holes, right? And so now that now they're saying, well, how would you do this? So you have the templates, and then they're going to be like, yeah, but the templates are cool, except for it doesn't meet my pretty edge case, and so they'll complain about that now. So we'll see templates for the templates maybe next. I don't know. Where's Madison? <laughs> I mean, they, they really just got to complain on the internet, and it's mostly Corey <laughs> uh, who complains about the fact that there's like 18 ways you can run a container on AWS. And and I think that's more ubiquitous of the fact that containers are becoming a deployment artifact that are easy mm-hmm. to be portable. And so it's just natural that your services start supporting containers versus an actual problem of like there's too many services run containers on AWS. So. I disagree with him on this one, but uh, I do see him use that all the time. Like, oh, you know, Amazon's releasing another way to run containers on AWS. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> that's yeah. how I feel about it. It is funny because I, I, I hear the same thing and I'm like, that's a good thing. I don't I don't get the complaint, right? Like, yeah, I like, want f- freedom of choice and flexibility in my workloads. Yeah, one of those ways would be the best way and one would be the worst way and there'll be some in between. So it's good. Yeah. But again, it's like it's meeting a developer where they're at, right? And if they... You know, they really desperately are trying to do MLAI with with containers. Uh, they should have a way to run containers in their SageMaker product. If they don't do that, then you have the option for them to just run Jupyter notebooks on EC2 boxes. Like, you know, making developers have choice, I don't think, is a bad thing. Well, the uh, article that's caused all of our hosts to be super cranky. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, AWS Stub Functions is now providing you a new console experience for viewing and debugging your workflow executions and make it easier to search, filter, and root cause issues in your executions. And our hosts are not angry about that part. This next part is where they all get a bent out of shape. <laughs> AWS Stub Functions is a low-code visual workflow service that can be used to connect over 220 AWS services and 10,000 API actions to build applications using workflows. Uh, and now Stub Functions make it easier to navigate through the details of your workflow figure out where it broke, which if you've ever had to do that, uh, it is definitely doesn't feel low-code. Uh, and errors apparently are now easier to root cause as the experience highlights the reason for failure in a workflow execution, and you can reverse sort the execution history to see the events that led to your failure. So there you go. That's uh, that's the thing. So I assume you want to have a low-code, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I, I just love the... The assumption that you know you could low code a solution with with step functions just because I've created many many a step function you know and state machine flow and it's all it is is coding and then figuring out why the code isn't doing what I want because <laughs> I'm not passing things correctly between the different functions and uh, so yeah like 
the the ability for someone who can't write code to be able to, to accomplish anything is yeah a little far fetched there. I guess that's that is the case for custom functions which we glue together with step functions. I, I assume this is kind of like an if this and that kind of a kind of a play or or um you know a, a way of building automations using native services without having to write your own lambdas necessarily. You know, sort of drag and drop message comes from here, do this with it kind of thing. So maybe maybe they are kind of rebranding a little bit. Maybe they are trying to go down the path of hey, look at all the stuff you can do with the existing services without having to write code. But yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I think they've struggled with the UI for step functions since its inception. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I like what they tried to do, you know, with the, providing the, the flow and the map and, and that stuff. And so it's like, I get the intent, but the execution was a little rough. Yep. But yeah, it's a. I definitely don't feel like when you're starting places, you're writing lambda code is. That's definitely not a low code solution. But yeah, I haven't tried to actually stitch together eventing between different, you know, AWS services together, and maybe that is more plug and play and lower low codey. But again, it's not. considering it's absolutely not, <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, considering that most services don't even have the same JSON format, like you have to do a transform somewhere, don't you? Or an extraction of a, of a JSON object out of a, of a query string. So like at some place you're going to be broken in this process. Yeah. So I just, yeah. I just don't think it's that low code. That's, that's the code part of the low code. Yeah. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. The, the it's low getting... code in that there's a GUI. Yeah. So... <laughs> You can drag things around on said GUI, which is cool. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. no, it's, it is really funny just because, you know, like the, you know, getting something out of, you know, S3 or parameter store or, you know, DynamoDB, which is huge in, in step functions is like all of those have different formats. And unless there's a huge catalog, you know, available of, of things where you can tune these things. I don't know. I mean, I think why they they do sell Lambda functions as objects in the marketplace. I don't know that they're also plug and playable. I, like, there's, I've yet to see a really reliable Lambda marketplace. I think to really share these things. Yeah, and if they do it for step functions, why the hell aren't they doing it for like AWS Glue, right? <laughs> Which is yeah. also a no code solution for for building your your ETL pipelines and stuff like that. But the, it's also impossible for the exact same reasons. Well, if you uh, you have a need for really super complicated Postgres architectures that you don't want to run, and you're hoping RDS could take them on, they might be able to now, uh, because Amazon RDS for Postgres now supports uh, a Postgres SQL 14 with three levels of cascaded re-replicas, five replicas per instance, and supporting a maximum up to 155 re-replicas per source instance. You now create single AZ or multi AZ cascaded re-replica DB instances in the same region or any cross region from another. Replica instance enabling you to build a more robust disaster recovery architecture and cause all of your incident calls to go much, much longer as you try to decipher all of this. As well as your bill. Yeah, <laughs> like, and your bill. Anyone who needs this many like levels of uh, cascaded replicas, I would like to introduce to a caching system. Because <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, the one customer who needed 150 read replicas is super happy now and everyone else yeah. is kind of looking at it thinking, what the, what the Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, that one that one caught my eye. I was I was like, that's a lot of read replicas. I, that's a heavy sharding strategy, I suppose, at mm -hmm. a at a database that doesn't shard very well. I wonder if that's actually driven by the commerce side of the business, right? Because be. if you think about, you know, who's going to be the annoying customer with the use case? Yeah, probably just Amazon.com. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking maybe it has something to do with the way Aurora works. Because um, again, you know, with Aurora having their own kind of implementation of Postgres, maybe there's something there, and they're just like, oh, we can port that over to RDS as a 
from other people who have insane read requirements, but mm-hmm. I, I don't really know. Hmm. Well, moving on to GCP, the cloud TPU VMs, which we talked about previously, are now generally available. Uh, and if you don't remember what a TPU host machine is, and I, don't. Uh, I, I can help you with that. And these systems give you access to the physical TPU hardware, and the rapidly growing TPU user community has enthusiastically adopted the access mechanism because it not only makes it possible to have a better debugging experience, but also enables certain training setups such as distributed reinforcement learning, which were not feasible with a TPU node architecture, which was remote. Uh, Snap uh, was an early adopter, apparently, of the TPU capability, and they apparently achieved 4.65 times the perf and TCO improvement. Now, I'd like to point out that they rounded that to 4.65 times, not just four times, not just five times. This is data science is at its finest. They've mm-hmm. given you three, two decimal points of accuracy. <laughs> uh, improve their, you know, to improve their business-critical ad ranking workload, and they highlighted three things, that the TPUs offer much faster training speed and significantly lower training costs, recommendations, their system models than the CPUs. The TensorFlow, TensorFlow for cloud TPU provides a powerful API to handle large embedding tables and fast lookups. And on the TPU v3 to dash 32 slice, Snap is able to get a three times better throughput uh, throughput on the A100 with 52.1% lower cost compared to equivalent A100 configuration, which is where we get that 4.65% performance TCO. Uh, there's been several new features available now as part of the GA as well, including ranking and recommendation improvements, new framework support, local execution of input pipelines, distributed reinforcement learning with TPU VMs, and custom ops support for TensorFlow, all available to you now in the GA of cloud TPU VMs. There are some things I really don't understand about this announcement. Most things, actually, about the announcement, I don't. But the the local execution of pipelines when announcing a type of VM <laughs> is very confusing to me. Well, yeah. TPU is just really an access mechanism of how you get to the GPU. So fundamentally, you're just testing your learning mechan- your learning recommendations locally and how you're ac- simulating the access method of the TPU. Right. So that's why it's it's a little confusing because they're combined. They're it's really an A100 server, but they're giving you this different access mechanism so you can basically take a single GPU and carve it up into smaller components, which is how you get more throughput uh, by you know, parallelizing your workflow through the same TPU, because the TPU is not always 100% busy in a normal A100 uh, system. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Yeah, they're just confusing you with words. So they, yeah, well, it's not, not that hard to do. <laughs> so it's an emulator. Got it. <laughs> More like a scheduler, but oh, sure, emulators. <laughs> I'm sorry for Jonathan, but you know, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm also now at the edge of my knowledge of this topic. So yeah. Jonathan's the only one who can correct us if we're both wrong. So yeah, <laughs> no, I, I got nothing really. I, I know the TPU is like Google's custom hardware for for machine learning, the tensor processing units, but um, beyond that. I wish I had a use case to play with stuff like that, really. Maybe we can find one for you. We'll see what we can yeah. do. I got a bit, a bit of a handful to say nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, 
visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Also generally available this week, the BigQuery BI engine supports many BI tools or custom applications now. Uh, last year, Google launched a preview of BigQuery BI Engine, a fast in-memory analysis service that accelerates and provides sub-second query performance for dashboards and reports that connect to BigQuery. The BI Engine works with many BI or custom dashboarding tools, and this feature was designed to help analysts identify trends faster, reduce risk, match the pace of customer demand, and improve operational efficiency in an ever-changing business climate. Uh, with this launch, the customers are able to build fast interactive dashboards using Looker, Tableau, Sheets, Power BI, Click, or even custom applications that use their APIs. The BI Engine Acceleration works with BigQuery via native API integration, intelligent scaling, and a simple configuration. And all I heard is that the analysts didn't want to learn BigQuery, and so they made it work for them. <laughs> yeah, analysts don't want to learn BigQuery or move away from their tools, and all the data is in BigQuery. <laughs> so <laughs> something's got to give. It's so unusual to see uh, such a performance improvement and and cost saving at the same time, though. Mm-hmm. If if you have the right use case, then then putting this this cash in between costs less than not having the cash, and it improves performance. So it's it's kind of like awesome. Yeah, that's I, I want, my, want, want my cake and eat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Google is uh, following their security first approach to make safeguarding client and user data easier and more scalable with a strong security principle built into multiple layers of the Google Cloud. In line with this philosophy, they want to make sure that our, their container-optimized OS adheres to industry standard best practices. And to that end, Google released a CIS benchmark for container-optimized OS that codifies the recommendations for hardening and security measures uh, they have been using. The container-optimized OS 97 release now supports CIS Level 1 compliance with an option to enable support for CIS Level 2 hardening. And Google points out that the compliance is not just a one-time hardening effort, but to constantly check your system can be difficult, so they fix that for you with a new open source configuration scanner called Local Toast. Local Toast is a highly customizable and can be used to detect insecure OS configurations on local and remote machines, VMs, and containers. Configuration and scan results are stored in the Graphius format that deploy time security enforcement systems such as Critis use, which can make it easier to integrate with existing supply chain security and integrity tooling. I like this announcement. I, I, you know, like there's, it's one thing to CIS harden within your ecosystem um, and, you know, provide that as an enablement and offering in your service. It's another thing to develop an open source um, tool that anyone can use for their own workloads, their own, in their own clouds um, for, you know, just the ongoing setting of these hardening, uh, you know, uh, to, to the CIS standards. It, you know, that's an amazing oversight that is so often missed which is like you can make a you know a golden image and ship it out but you know the minute someone deploys it they can you know make changes and they can undo all that hardening and so and a lot of times people don't even know you know like a pretty common cis one is not making the the temp directory executable or things in that and so but there's a very common pattern where people dump things in temp and, and execute them in a temporary basis and so they'll just undo that um, so this is, yeah, I, I like it a whole lot. I like how your example of a common thing that people do is that they, they say, you know, they don't disable execution on temp. Uh, when the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, they just turn off SE Linux. You <laughs> <laughs> yeah, must work at yeah. a different level of person than I do, because that was not my first, my first go-to. <laughs> 
Well, you know, SE Linux, uh, you know, it, I've got a mixed history with that as well. I've definitely batted my head against it. And I don't actually, it's been a while since I have looked at the, the, the specific benchmarks, but I don't remember if in level one that SE Linux's enablement is required. It probably isn't because yeah. everybody who's used SE Linux was like, no, don't put it in the standard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I tried to find more information about local toast because it sounds really interesting. But when I Googled it, it came up with a restaurant in Oakland. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. They're still serving breakfast. <laughs> well, I mean, local toast is a thing you want to have on breakfast. Yeah. So I get yeah. it. Yep. <laughs> you can now orchestrate Looker data transfer- transformations with Cloud Composer. Looker's new Google Cloud operations for Apache Airflow are available in Cloud Composer, Google Cloud's fully managed service for orchestrating workflows across cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. This integration gives users the ability to orchestrate Looker persistent derived tables, or PDTs, alongside the rest of their data pipeline. Looker's persistent derived tables are the materialized results of a query written to a Looker scratch schema in the connected database and rebuilt on a defined schedule. Because they are defined within LookML, the PDTs reduce friction and speed up time to value by putting the power to create robust data transformations in the hands of data modelers, the administration of these transformations can be difficult to scale. And I wish I knew what any of this meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I get it. There's a, there's a table that you generate the data for as a scratch pad that I can use it, but then like PDTs come into mix and I'm like, I don't know what Pacific Daylight Time is about. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that's here, but you know, whatever, here we're at. And I, you know, then you get into the whole airflow thing, which is its own own nightmare of intricacies, uh, which at least is like you know, Cloud Composer now has that as a managed service for you, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, this is this is a for people who need this, you're really happy. For those of us who don't understand this, we're like, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. I knew it was bad when I was trying to click through, and I'm on my third layer of link trying to understand what's going on, and I finally get to, uh, you know, what is Cloud Composer with a nice infographic, and then I'm like, sweet, this is they finally talking to my level. <laughs> There's stick figures <laughs> and arrows. <laughs> But is it low code? <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, in fairness, Airflow does have a visual. Well, is it, Airflow's or NiFi. One of them does have a, like a visual composer thing for you to drag your transformations schema. So yes, it's, there is some low code in it. Oh, excellent. All right, moving on to Microsoft. Azure is announcing multiple enhancements to their Red Hat on Azure offering that will help customers accelerate their digital transformation with the power of the cloud. Oh, excuse me. I have to (laughs) throw up my bingo card real quick. Uh, Updates to the service include Red Hat Ansible Automation Platform on Azure. It's now available to customers in North America with a global availability coming soon. Ansible Automation Platform 2.2 features are available for customers in Tech Preview. The new Azure Arc-enabled SQL Manager instance is now supported on Red Hat OpenShift because everyone runs their SQL Server on OpenShift. Mm. Uh, Red Hat 9 will be available on Azure on May 24th, and your Azure hybrid benefits for Linux 3.0 will now also be broadly available on May 24th, allowing you to move those Red Hat 9 licenses from on-prem to a subscription on Azure and back again. So now you get license portability. It is very interesting how heavy Azure is going into partnering with with Red Hat, you know, like because it's considering how much Microsoft hated Red Hat for at a point in their history, it is a little mm-hmm. weird. Like you guys don't have a long memory at Red Hat, do you? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, like no, not when they're throwing around millions of dollars in partnership money. Of course, we don't right. have a long term memory, <laughs> and we were bought by IBM, so we need all the money we can get. Oh, I forgot about the IBM purchase. 
still IBM has their own cloud. It even makes it weirder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just just sort of a much better show title. Now now I've read this. <laughs> read read that and as your friends with hybrid benefits. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we might have to edit that in. Yeah, good. yeah. That's, that's worth it. Honorable mention. Episode 165 <laughs> recorded on May 11th. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, where were you when we were coming up with the show title? <laughs> uh, well, in our hopes of uh, outsourcing our jobs to Asia, uh, they have offered us new voices, but they're particularly targeted at gaming companies. Uh, the Asia Neural Text-to-Speech Capability, which is a, apparently a powerful speech synthesis capability of Azure Cognitive Services, enables developers to convert text to lifelike speech using AI. And there are five new neural voices in U.S. English, including two female voices, Jane and Nancy, and three male voices, Davis, Jason, and Tony. Now, first of all, why are the girl names white as hell, but the boy <laughs> names are, like, totally woke? Like, <laughs> that's a little weird. Yeah. Although, I mean, Tony's a little, to- a little white, too, I guess. But uh, they also have added eight emotional tones for many of the existing and new voices, including cheerful, angry, sad, excited, hopeful, friendly, unfriendly, and terrified. Uh, and they finally have moved and made some improvements to spatial experiences so they can now be shouting and whispering at you in all of these voices. Uh, so again, like the the days that we don't have to podcast anymore are getting closer, but not quite here. Yeah. Yet. Did you listen to them? I did. They are not. They all sound the same. <laughs> really at the end of the day. <laughs> I thought some of them were really good, uh, but but the ones that weren't good sounded worse than anything else that I've heard. Yeah, um, and then like you, know, you go into the article, and there's a partnership with some game company, and like these are the voices they're using in your game. Like I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's it's weird that they have to say that it's it's aimed at gaming. I mean, were, were they thinking that somebody would accidentally use the angry voice in a in a like a, a call tree or something, right? <laughs> I said, press the one button. <laughs> and, and never has a podcast article we've talked about ever been less relevant than a talk, uh, you know, neural voices that we're not actually sampling for our listeners at this moment. <laughs> so, so maybe we can insert some of the new voices here in the in the show, mm-hmm. so then they can hear what they are, so they could. Do something, but I, I didn't get that far in my efforts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lost interest. <laughs> we could just do bad computer speak, like, uh, and it would be a fair approximation. They're not great. <laughs> yeah, break your break your mo- your microphone again, so you Cylon. We'll just do <laughs> Ciloning again. It'll be perfect. Should yeah, I should have left it with a bad connection. Yeah, it'd been perfect. And then next up is uh, Microsoft aims to boost their growing cybersecurity business with a new managed service. Uh, Microsoft's diving deeper and deeper into cybersecurity, which is probably because they hired a new leader of cybersecurity from mm-hmm. AWS. Uh, Microsoft security experts combine expert-trained technology with human-led services to help organizations achieve more secure, compliant, and productive outcomes. The new services include Microsoft Defender experts for hunting, Microsoft Defender experts for XDR, and Microsoft Security Services for Enterprise. The offering will help boost Microsoft's growing cybersecurity business, in January, Microsoft said revenue from security products in the prior 12 months surpassed $15 billion, up 45% year-over-year, more than 8% of Microsoft's total revenue for that time period, and three times the annual revenue of Palo Alto Networks, who also makes all of these products and hardware. <laughs> so that's a little awkward. Mm. Yeah, I was confused by what this offering is. Like, this is, is this professional services with a security angle? Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not really... This is people. Huh? Yeah, it's not a service. It's not part of the cloud. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's a a service, just not the type of service you're used to talking about. Right, and it's just kind of interesting that they're you know lumping in with the uh, the revenue of you know Azure and and you know like it's a sort of it's an interesting fit, 
And then it also gets even more interesting when, when you look at their, you know, the past year they've had for security incidents. And it's just like, oh, <laughs> like a little strange. Definitely. All right. And then we have an Oracle story this week. Always our favorite here at the mm-hmm. CloudPod. This one is announcing the availability of Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Search Service with OpenSearch. Oracle is announcing the GA, which we talked about previously. The service makes it easy for customers to ingest, search, visualize, and analyze their data. This managed service is the first of many other currently in development, making a new era of OCI managed open source software services. And that era is we steal stuff from Amazon, which is the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they know that, you know, this is a, it is an open source, you know, project, but they're, you know, largely contributed to by Amazon. So I wonder if they just don't know. Maybe they, Maybe don't, they know. don't. Maybe, yeah. Maybe <laughs> they just, it's like, oh, it has a GPL v4. We can just steal yeah. it. So it's, yeah. it's all good. Oh, it's Microsoft or Amazon's behind it. Oh, no one told us that part. Uh, oh, uh, too late. <laughs> too late. Sorry. And we are still missing Peter. I think he's back next week. Although, again, he didn't put his vacation in the file. So yeah. I don't know. I think it's next week he's back, so hopefully yeah. we'll see him next week. If we but, let him out of the dungeon, he will be. That's right, out of the dungeon. <laughs> uh, so we will just do round robin here once again. Ryan, I put you up first. All right. AWS Secrets Manager now publishes secrets usage metrics to Amazon CloudWatch. You know, my security team was really angry when we published the secrets into the logs on CloudWatch, so I don't understand why this is a good thing. <laughs> at least you know somebody shared them. Can you keep a secret? Isn't, you know, no. the best way to keep a secret is to not tell a secret. So, like, if you if you're advertising the usage of a secret, is it is it secret anymore? It's secret. Amazon EFS now supports a larger number of concurrent file locks. Uh, I love how we take on-premise problems like EFS file locking and we move it to the cloud, and then we get excited when we announce features that we've had on-premise for decades. Appreciate that. Thanks, Amazon. Yeah, yeah I can't wait for you know all the complaints about how the performance has gone down. Yes. <laughs> File systems are constantly waiting for the lock. Yeah. Yes, you, you couldn't do as many writes before, but you could do more reads, and now you're just totally screwed because <laughs> there's locks on everything. Yeah, that's, yep. That's how that'll work out. That's yep. Great. You can now monitor your Amazon managed service for Prometheus usage with Amazon CloudWatch usage metrics. <laughs> if there wasn't anything more complicated, it's using one monitoring service to monitor another monitoring service. <laughs> I mean, but then you buy Datadog to monitor CloudWatch, and then you get something else to monitor Datadog. Like, it's just monitoring all around. Mm-hmm. At the end, it's just a guy with a laptop, and his one job is to stare at it. And a pager. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Dr. Seuss story where, you know, the people keep going through the machine, the star off machine, the star on machine. Like, every time they go through, they lose dollars. Every time, every time you monitor something, something else, it costs more money. <laughs> Amazon Connect now supports up to six participants on a customer service call. I pity if I ever have to be on a call where it requires six people to fix my problem. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, you know, the, the entire world has spent the last, like, three years in conference calls, either on Zoom or WebEx or, or Google, and this is the service that they're announcing? Like, no, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> it's not Chime, at least. It is, it is Connect. Give it some credit. <laughs> <laughs> and the new Amazon Elastic Hash console is now available. And I meant to go look at it to, to give a comment about it, but that's how much I cared. I didn't get there. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to assume I hate it yeah, without looking at it. Yeah, kind of my definition of how I assume mm-hmm. all these things. The biggest problem is I never went to the old Elastic Hash console. So 
Like, I don't really. <laughs> like, I think I've been there before, but like, could I, could I, if you had put me in a gunpoint, would I be able to tell you what it looked like before? No. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. So there you go. I always called about the API when I ready to set it up. Right. Yeah. That's just easier. It's pretty easy <laughs> service to set up and use. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like four, uh, yeah. It's like, you know, six lines of, of JSON code and cloud formation yeah. and you have ElastiCache. It's not yeah. hard. Apparently, the console experience was too difficult for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the wizard didn't work. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's developer enablement, Justin. Don't, oh, sorry don't, sorry. don't don't dismiss it. Developer enablement. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. <laughs> All right. Well, things are coming up once again here in the cloud. We have uh, the RSA conference in June. We've got DevOps Enterprise Summit Virtual Europe, May 10th through the 12th. We've got the Startup Summit for June 2nd for Google Cloud, and then June 9th is the Applied ML Summit, so maybe they can explain to us some of the things they announced with TPUs, because I mm-hmm. still don't get it. Uh, and then they have a Sustainability Summit that they just popped on the calendar in June, end of June. If you're in the sustainability world and you care, uh, there's a full day of Cloud Summit for you coming on June 28th. And then, of course, uh, Remars is still on the way. June, we have AWS Reinforce. Lots coming up here in the cloud. Check it out in our show notes. And we'll see you next week in the cloud. Good night. See you later. Bye, everybody. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.